Thank you, Deacon Brian and Lacey and team for leading us on a time of worship. Well, we're good to be here. I'm very excited to share with you God's Word. I hope you're excited to hear also. Allow me to pray. Father, grant me clarity and help me to be faithful to speak your word. And may your people hear your voice speaking to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we are going to look at something remarkable about what it means to belong and have a relationship with God. And I'm going to do something different in my uh, message today. I won't tell you except for one thing only, right? Unlike previous times, I'm going to share with you the main point at the end of the message, not in the beginning. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is filled with many exciting and wondrous truths, but I must tell you that I took a long time to deliberate how was I going to present to you the whole chapter, and I couldn't. So I had to choose. So I'm going to only preach to you from verses 1 to 11. I heard Pastor Roger is preaching 12 to 25, so you can listen to the rest on a podcast with him. But I'm going to tell you what is the outline of the message, and so that is our first slide. There are three things that I want to cover in this message. First, how to enter into the relationship with God. Two, what are the realities of this new relationship? And the third one, how to respond. Romans 5, 1 to 11 is like a bridge that connects verse chapter 1 to 4 Romans, where we were once outside of God and Jesus, and Romans 5 to 8, what it means to be in Jesus. It is an elaboration of what it means to be justified by faith and what it means to have a living relationship with Christ, what it means to be one in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul in 11 verses talks about five things that I think are very important for us. Faith, peace, grace, hope, and love. And that's what we're going to explore. And the first is faith. How to enter into this relationship with God? In Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to enter a relationship with God is to have faith in Jesus, what He has done for you and me, how He was delivered and how His sacrifice on the cross was more than sufficient to pay for our sins and how we were separated by God and how His resurrection from the ground showed us without a doubt that you and I are justified. There is nothing to do about our work our efforts, not even our accomplishments or our worth. Paul has been arguing from Romans 1 to 2 how everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and sin against God, from the religious-minded people, the Jews, and the pagans, those who don't even believe in God. That is why you and I can never earn our salvation by our own works, and even if we try to follow the laws of God, we will never be able to. Because we learn that the laws of God on Romans chapter 3 and 4 tells us that the laws of God cannot save us. Its purpose is to point to us the holiness and the perfection and glory of God and how imperfect and sinful we are. 
any attempt to save ourselves is akin to trying to grasp for, for the air and the water while we are drowning, and every effort leads to the inevitable. That is why Paul argued how important faith is as he ends in Romans 4, and why Abraham is not just only the father of our faith, but he's an example to follow. What do I mean by that? In Romans 4, 25 Paul now concludes looking at Abraham and says that the words that was credited to him was not for him alone, but for us. We can be credited this righteousness. And guess what? If we also believe in God, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What Paul was saying here is that Abraham was promised for a future, a son, whom he will call Isaac. And his response was to believe in faith that God will give him this son, even the impossible, when he was old age and Sarah too. And you know what Paul is telling us here? Paul is telling us that you and I have been given a promise of another son, another son greater than Isaac, and his name is Jesus. And that's why when we have faith in him, in what he has done, not of the future, but of the past, we will be justified by faith because we are saved in this son who is greater than Isaac. So salvation in Jesus Christ is not the end, but the beginning of a wondrous relationship. And that's where we enter in chapter 5 itself. And how marvelous it is to be in union with Jesus. And so this leads to the next question. Now that we are in relationship with God, what does it mean? And how do I know? And the first thing is peace. Peace. Paul says in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he also encapsulates the end of this verse, of this uh, paragraph with verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is remarkable that the first thing that Paul highlights when we are justified in, by faith in, is peace. Do you know why? Because there was a time when the wrath of God, the very wrath of God was upon us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we remember how the wrath of God is revealed in all heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which is us. And later on in chapter 5, verse 9, he talks about how there is another wrath that is anticipated of the future, that how we will be saved by it too. You see, God was angry with us because of our sins and our rebellion against Him. If you have not remembered, or maybe you have forgotten, there was once you and I were hostile against God. We didn't want to do anything with God at all. We wanted to do, we wanted to do everything against God. We, called, we saw God as our very enemies who hated us or we hated God. And to put it in another way, we were at war with God. And the thing is, it is clear, if nothing was done, the final battle, if nothing, was, nothing intervened in this war, we know that the conclusion will be clear. God will prevail, and all of us, humanity, will be destroyed by His wrath. But God 
chose a moment in time and intervened and offers us peace through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this peace is expressed in how Paul also talks about reconciliation. You see, Paul is showing us that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God, verse 1. And through Jesus, we are reconciled with God, verse 11. And it will help us to understand this is how we see our relationship from the first and the last. First verse, verse 1 and verse 11. But you see, unfortunately, I must say that I was struggling because you and I have not really experienced war. We have been blessed in being part of this nation that peace is something that we have all enjoyed very much. But at a larger scale as a whole, the only peace that the world can, that has kind of is acquainted or familiar with is temporal peace because peace is carved out of war. Aristotle once said that we make war that we may have, that we may live in peace. So peace and war are mixed to each other itself. And despite so many peace agreements, after so many wars throughout generations and history, it never lasts. Do you know why? Because the world and humanity is neglecting a greater war that is more important. And that war is between God and humanity. That unless we have peace with God that is permanent, you and I will never have peace with one another. We don't have to go too far to experience this elusiveness and fragility of peace, even though we are not at war as a nation. Look at our relationship with one another. Are we sure that we have peace with everyone? No. In fact, sometimes, more often than, uh, than, than we would want to admit, we are always in conflict and we hurt one another. And Paul tells us that unless we experience the permanent peace of God that is in Jesus Christ, we will end up fighting with one another, even today. You see, when Adam sinned against God, he fractured this relationship. And humanity has a void in this heart that is so vast and deep that nothing could fill in it except God himself. I mean, give you an example. If you, have a, if you are in a relationship or if you were once in a relationship with someone that you love very much and for whatever reason the relationship has broken or the person is no longer around in your life, you feel hurt, you feel lost because that person has left a void in your heart. And you, you and I know that we can't just replace that void with just having another friend or entering into another relationship. No, that void stays there and we feel it. And no matter how many relationships we might have, it's still there. How much more is the void in our hearts that God has left? That is why you and I have been trying so hard to fill this vacuum, this void that is so loud in our hearts with everything and anything, including our relationship with one another. And we have no peace, the true peace and permanent peace with one another is because we seek something that the other person cannot give, that only God can. And sometimes in our conflict, the peace in this relationship with each other can be too costly that we are not willing to afford to pay or we think that it will never happen. But now that we are justified by faith in Christ, we have this permanent peace with God. 
and he came at a costly price in the death and sacrifice of Jesus. But because he came at the costly price, you and I can be so sure and certain that our peace is secure and permanent because someone was willing to pay the price. And when you experience the peace of God and you understand it, you will be able to do something that you were never once not able to do, to make peace even with someone who has hurt you deeply. Because why? The most important relationship in your life, which is with God, has been reconciled. Prior for me coming back from overseas in 2019, the Lord prompted me to reconcile with another person who has hurt me very deeply, was more than 10 over years. This person was someone that I respected very much. I look up to him as almost like my spiritual father. And the pain was so, so raw that I couldn't think I could reconcile with him. I could forgive him, but I could never forget and reconcile. But God allowed me to experience this peace, this wondrous beauty of his relationship with him, that I stopped looking at my pain and the conflict in my heart and treasured the peace that I have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I knew all of a sudden, in all eternity, that was the most important thing, not this. And so before I started my work officially here in September, I made time to visit this person and to reconcile with him. And I can tell you after that, I felt such a lightness of my heart and my spirit as I could never have experienced before. Because there was peace, not just with God, but peace in my heart with this person. So for all of us here, it is amazing. Now, in terms of human relationship too, I also learned, uh, in terms of other relationship, I also learned an early truth of this wise saying of the ages of many wise men who have learned. And that saying is, a happy wife is a happy, Happy life. Have you heard of that? Do you all agree? Men? No, I'm so nervous. Okay, never mind. <laughs> what that means is, when mommy is happy, everybody is happy. The kids are happy, and the father is happy too. But when daddy is unhappy, no one cares. <laughs> everybody still can be happy without daddy. So, do you know what's the lesson here? The lesson here is don't forget about daddy because when daddy is happy, mommy can go shopping, all right? That's the lesson here. You and I know that it's never pleasant to have conflict in our relationship, especially the ones that we love very much. And maybe sometimes we are struggling in that, but let me tell you the solution to that is to experience the peace of God that was bought at the costly price of Jesus. And when you experience that, all other peace in all other relationship is nothing compared to that. But now that we have peace with God and reconcile with Him, what are we entering into now? We are entering into a new reign called the reign of grace. In verse 2, Paul continues, through Him, Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When we look at verse 2, Paul is telling us that it is also by faith that we have now access to a time of grace. And this is called the reign of grace at the end of the ch uh, chapter 5 itself. 
But where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, as it was in the past, now grace might also reign in your life right now. There is new management in your life. Your life is no longer reigned by the power and control of sin, by the power and by the power of grace. So what does it mean? It means that you no longer need to prove yourself by your works anymore or seek to demonstrate of how worthy you are. There is no longer about, it's no longer about your own efforts or trying to reach a certain standard or expectation of yours and maybe others. To live, to live under grace is counter to our cultural and societal values. Do you know that? What do I mean? Let's take the example of the concept of meritocracy. I personally do believe that this is one of the best ways for a pluralistic society to develop, to grow, and even to be governed. But I will also admit that it has its own weaknesses and limitations. In my own simple definition, meritocracy is about choosing the best person for the work who has proven himself or herself. Can you imagine how burdensome and heavy and even overwhelming it is to keep up to such a high standard of expectation that you are constantly being judged and assessed by your performance day after day? How long do you think you can keep maintaining that level of excellence and always deliver all the time, every time? The truth is, no one can without paying the high consequences of it. Like what? Your health, physical health, mental health, emotional health, and also about your relationships too. They will suffer in the pursuit of such excellence by your own efforts. And a merit-based society and culture doesn't just stop at measuring at your good works. Do you know that? But they will also remember the bad ones too. I was shocked about this. I must tell you, when I was in school, in primary school and secondary school, I, I didn't study. I just like to play, 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 play a lot. And I really enjoyed my school days, okay? But it also meant that I didn't do very well for my results. My O level was so high that if you divide by two, it's still double digit, okay? So this, I won't say any more, okay? But I worked very hard when I was in poly, you know, I, I was a late developer, poly, you know, older. Wow, I worked hard and I did very well. I, I was quite proud of it. Mm. So when I was in the military, I signed on as a regular. And because I love the military, okay, I, I, maybe I look strange to you, but I love the military, I did really well. And during my cadet course, I, I was one of two selected to go on a program, to go to Japan, wow, to continue my cadet training. And I like... Japanese anime, I was very excited. I want to learn Japan, uh, Japanese too. So we were interviewed, and I think I did very well. And then at the, uh, at the last part of the interview, the major was looking through at my results. And he realized that he saw the wrong record. And he realized that the one that he looked at him was the one who did very well. It's not me. And so, oh, that's not you. Then when he saw my PSLE and my O-level result, he like, no. Wow, I was so angry, you know, because like, I was primary six, only 12 years old, and 16 years old, I didn't do anything. And yet, I'm being penalized because of my result. It's, it's terrible, you know. No. 
and I was so dejected. It was quite painful. See, the rest of my life, uh, the PSLA and O-level will always follow me all the way, you know, at the end, until I die, okay? That's how bad it is in a merit-based society. It's true. Because they don't just look at your good results. They also assess your track record as your bad results. But have you ever considered that you and I were meant to live under a different reign that doesn't measure your worth based on merits and faults? Paul tells us before justification, we were under the reign of sin. And in that reign of sin, we, in our fleshly, carnal way, we wanted to prove ourselves and say that we are of worth, which we are not. And then by justification, by faith in Christ, all of a sudden, we are now under the reign of grace. No longer about performance, but about dependence. No longer about proving self, but surrendering, surrendering self. Look at what Paul said concerning his experience in, chapter two, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 regarding grace. When he was going through a weakness, a terrible time, God replied, the Lord replied to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to experience the power of God in your life? Do you know it is not found in when you are strong? It is found when you are weak. And maybe that's the reason why we haven't experienced it as much as we ought to. Because we have been sold to the value of the society itself in trying to be strong. Paul discovered that it's not about being good or trying to perform well or trying to be strong, but it's about daring under the power of grace to acknowledge and own your weakness and surrendering to Christ so that His power may shine forth in you. And because you are justified by faith, in what Jesus has done for you. You and I no longer need to be afraid and hide away from our weaknesses and failures because that's exactly where the power of God is manifested and experienced. But lest we think that now that we, can, we are under grace, we can be lazy or passive in our lives and our work, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, them being the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He now understood how the power of God works in him. It enabled him to work even harder than before. But yet, this working harder than before will not crush you because you are no longer working for yourself, but for the Lord. You're no longer building up for yourself and proving your worth. You work hard because it is a response in joy and gratefulness that you are under grace by what Christ has done for you and not law. Under grace, the focus is no longer about performance or earning merits. Instead, under grace, it is counterintuitive. 
it will make you a better worker than before because you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether or not your colleagues, your subordinates, your superiors are even watching you. I was watching this short video by TikTok how they were talking about the different nicknames that people will use about their fellow co-workers. And it was very funny because uh, I will tell you what it is and just make sure that uh, maybe some of your co-workers might be using that on you. Eh? They will sometimes label this co-worker Kit Kat. You know why? Kit Kat, the chocolate, because the person's always taking a break. <laughs> sometimes they will nickname this co-worker Motion Light. You know why? Because only when people are moving, when there's things moving, then he'll start doing work. When everybody's not doing anything, right, he will not do any work. So it's called motion light. And the last one, forgive me if your name is called Justin. The person is called Justin. Because he will, just, he will do just enough work not to get fired. That's why it's called Justin. You know what? You and I, because we are under grace, we will always be working for the Lord. And even if one day somehow we fail and we don't do as well, it will not crush us. It will not make us so severely unable to work again. Instead, under grace, we can start over and do again. And because of this, you know what will happen? Your work performance will not just only be consistent, it will be productive. And as a result of living under grace. Remember how I define meritocracy? Having the best person to do the work because he has proven himself? Have you ever considered that the best person to do the job of saving you is not yourself, but Jesus Christ? So stop trying to save yourself. You can't do it. And Jesus has already done it for you. You don't have to prove yourself that you're worth because he has really saved you out of his love. That is what it means to be under grace. Yet though we are under the reign of grace, it is not the end. There is still something to look forward to in the future. And that is where hope comes in. The second part of verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The third reality of this relationship with God is hope. Now, do you know how powerful hope is? I have mentioned this before, but I'm very sure you forgot about it because I also forgot about it, this illustration. Okay? An experiment using rats was conducted in the 1950s. If you like rats, I'm so sorry about this, okay? By a scientist named Kurt Richter. He placed rats in a half-filled water basin and see how long they would tread on water before they drown. Okay? Guess how long they lasted before they drowned? 15 minutes. And the lab assistant would rescue them before they completely drown and give them a period of rest to recuperate. And then for the second time, put them back into the water basin again. And guess this time how long they would swim for? Five minutes? 10 minutes? 15? 60 hours. 60 hours. I also thought, maybe I thought 60 minutes is quite impressive. 60 hours. If you don't believe, you can try, okay? 60 hours. 
before they drown. It would be very sad, you know, after 60 hours they drown, then they never rescue, but I think they did rescue. Okay, why? Because somehow the mice had hoped that they would be rescued again. That's why they kept treading water. If this kind of hope can have such a dramatic and power effect, powerful effect on mice, how about you and me when our hope is even greater? You see, why hope? Paul, in a few verses, is talking about three timelines. The past, our justification by faith in Christ, our present experience, the reign of grace, and the future that is to come, hope. There's a theological concept that many Christians don't, are not either aware or don't consider often as they seek to live their present life in obedience to the Lord. And that is called here but not yet. It means that we are not just justified by faith. It means that we are justified by faith, we are forgiven of our sins, declared righteous in the sight of God, and now even part of God's family. And even the blessings of God are now ours. But the full experience of being reconciled to God, the fulfillment of all the blessings that God has promised to us will not happen now, but only when the day we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, that's why hope comes in. The sacrifice and death of the Lord Jesus Christ has broken the powers of sin, Satan and death. But we must not forget that they still exist. We are living between two tensions, the existence of Satan, sin and death, and our new place in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But till that fullness of time comes, we hope, even if we have to struggle for it. You see, even though we are justified by faith in Christ, you and I will still suffer. But there's a very big difference. Look at what Paul wrote, 3 and 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, in our past, our sufferings are the result of our sins, the brokenness of the world, and God's wrath against us. But now, something has changed. Our suffering now has nothing to do with God's wrath or anger against us. In fact, you can be certain because of Jesus' death and sacrifice, God will never be angry with you again. Never. Yes, He may be disappointed by our unwise decisions or when we fall into sin, but His wrath, which has really been assuaged by the death of Jesus Christ, will never be experienced by us again. That is the certainty that we have. That's why we have peace. Instead, the suffering we now experience will only be because of the sins of the world, the sins of others, and the evil one warring against us. But God will now do something extraordinary about this suffering. He will use this suffering to help us grow, mature, and become more Christ-like. When I was, when I was uh, overseas studying, I was asked to do a presentation of a major Asian um, religion for the Sunday school because I was the only Asian there. So I said, okay. So I did my research and preparation and I discovered something that was remarkable. 
In the other Asian faith, the philosophy and the way they understand suffering is suffering is bad, and you need to do whatever you can to escape the cycle of suffering, either doing good works or discovering the God that is within you. But at the end of the day, suffering is to be avoided and escaped at all costs. But I realized that Christianity had a different take. Christianity doesn't avoid suffering. It embraces suffering because suffering will lead us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many of us here, and I do not know specifically what you are going through. Some of us could be suffering and going through a very difficult time. But I'm glad you are here, and I hope that you hear the voice of God speaking to you through His Word. That how God is going to use the suffering in your life to do something greater. I know you may have prayed and asked God to take away this suffering, to answer a prayer, to, to do something different that you wouldn't have to suffer. And maybe in your response, you have been upset, hurt, disappointed, and even angry with God. And yet God doesn't seem to do anything different, but allow the suffering to go through. Why? Because at the end of it, there is something even greater, more precious than you ever realize. You see, because of Jesus, because he suffered on our behalf that led to condemnation, it led to our salvation. His suffering changed our suffering completely and forever. So you and I can be certain that our suffering now has nothing to do with our condemnation but sanctification to become more like Him. That's why in verses 3 to 5, Paul tells us the steps of sanctification that will lead us to a more hope. If you remember what Paul wrote in Philippians, that I may know Christ, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Somehow in the crucible of fellowship of suffering, we become more like Jesus and we understand Jesus even more. And so, because we understand this, we have hope that this suffering is not to destroy us but to grow us. We can rejoice. It changes our attitude completely. We can now finally look at suffering positively. And whatever the suffering may be, you and I can endure it because we are looking to the future hope of the glory and the perfection of ourselves and the wondrous experience of being reconciled with Jesus. So much so that in later part in chapter 8, verse 18 in Romans, Paul talks about how our present suffering has nothing, cannot be worth compared to the future glory. And we can be certain of this hope because it is not a fool's hope, but a hope that is anchored in something proven and sure, the love of God. Paul continues that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
And then he argues how we are loved by giving us a form of human comparison. You see, this love of Christ has been demonstrated in the past and continues to have its effect today that you and I can experience it very, very, at this very moment. It is here and it is real. And he uses two plausible scenarios that even we ourselves can understand. That if we have to make a decision to give our lives the ultimate sacrifice to someone, we want to do it for someone that at least is worth it. At least at very base level, religiously righteous. Someone who believes in God, does and follows God's law, whatever it might be. If not a bit more, he is morally good. But even then, we do hesitate and we do wonder, is it worth it? And then Paul contrasts now reminds us when did Christ die for us. In verse 6, he says, while we were weak, while we were ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. And verse 10, when we were still enemies. Paul is making a very clear point that when Christ died for you, out of his love, we were the most unworthy people of all. And he still did it. You know, when someone has seen the worst of you, and still loves you, you know that this person truly loves you. That is why I think when people go, go out and, and on a dating scene, for example, and when they project either only the good part of themselves or in some ways worse, something that they are not, and hope that person will fall in love, that person will only fall in love with the good side and only a, a, a projection of who they are that they want to be. And they are afraid in this relationship because they get nervous when the person gets closer because they'll be wondering, feeling insecure, will this person love me if he or she sees my faults, all the things that are bad about me? And because they've been projecting a, a false part or a lie, the disappointment is realized and then the vicious cycle continues because they don't dare to project the ugly side of them. You know, do you know how I know my wife loves me? Well, when I was secondary one, there was a girl who liked me and my best friend introduced her name to me. Incidentally, her name's called Grace. Then when she saw me, how I ate during lunch, she stopped liking me. <laughs> Apparently, the way I eat uh, is very not good. Lah. I didn't realize because I never eat in front of a mirror, right? You know? But my wife doesn't seem to mind. Lah, or she's also maybe eating only for herself only. But guess what? I, I also didn't realize that this is hereditary because my two sons also eat like me like that. <laughs> Worse or so. I said, well, must see who is the girl who like you. Well, another reason why I also know very sure that why my wife loves me is because when I went through my own difficult times in my life and I was the worst, that I even hated myself, I couldn't love myself. My wife, who was my ex-girlfriend then, stuck next to me. Ex-girlfriend because now my wife is he. Hey, hey. That's how you know. If you are at the very worst and someone says that he loves you or she loves you and has done something for you, you know that he or she really loves you. I like this quote. There is nothing you can do that can make God love you more and there's nothing you can do that can make God love you less. Isn't this so wonderful? You don't have to do anything. God loves you already. And this is where our hope 
is anchored on. And we come to the last point. As such, how should we respond to these great truths that when we have exercised faith in Christ, we have peace, we are under the reign of grace, we have hope, and we have love. Do you know what's the response? We boast. And this is the main point of the sermon. Therefore, boast. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, you have all these peace, grace, love, and hope. We respond by boasting. Now, why boast? Because the, the, a closer translation to the word itself is not so much rejoicing, but boasting. And NIV actually captures it more accurately. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also boast, but they use the word glory in our sufferings. And the last, not only is this so, but we also boast in God. But didn't Paul warn earlier on in the earlier chapters that we shouldn't boast? Yes. When we were boasting about ourselves, our own works, and our own accomplishment, no, because it's worth nothing. But when it comes to be in Christ, in relationship with God, yes, we boast. We boast because of what Jesus has done for us. That is the key difference. And if you truly understand and experience these truths, let me tell you, you can do nothing but boast in God. Boasting is more than just, being, just rejoicing and being happy. There is an element about declaring to others, just like how in our sinful ways we want to boast about ourselves, but now we boast about Christ. And boasting is the wondrous way of worshipping the Lord. As one commentator explains, the highest form of worship is boasting in God. In fact, it is the, it is the Lord who tells us that He wants us to boast in Him. And this is where I end. I end with these two verses in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So go forth and boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. How wonderful it is to be in Christ. Because we are justified by faith, we can experience all these wondrous, amazing truths that we never had once before. And, we, and I ask that you encourage my brothers and sisters here, all who might be struggling in one way or the other, that you will lift them up and to remind them how blessed we are and how, and how we should be so joyful and boastful in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.